This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. This week's sermon is by Canon Stephen Gautier and is from the 18th Sunday after Pentecost. Whenever I hear today's gospel, I can't help but think about those dumb criminal stories. We've all seen them on TV or on the internet type of thing. People do have remarkably stupid criminal plans. Let me give you a classic example. You've all heard stories like this. Uh, our particular brain trust here is from North Richland Hills, Texas. I'm going to read the news story. It says, on July 29, 2007, two burglars in North Richland Hills, Texas, broke into a store that sells security systems and accessories and managed to stuff in over $10,000 worth of surveillance equipment, mostly security cameras and house alarms, into a couple of trash bags in only one minute and 15 seconds. So far, so good. Okay. Then things go south. All the while, however, they were being recorded by 17 security cameras <laughs> of the same make and models as the one they were stealing. Moreover, there were no less than 12 warning signs across the front of the store advising criminals that, among other things, someone is watching you. One of those 17 security cameras captured images of their getaway car, including the license plate, which was not stolen, but registered to one of the burglars. The police, of course, tracked them down to one of their homes, and they were both arrested. Okay. So... If we appreciate the delicious irony of a story like that, we can certainly appreciate today's parable of the, of the, the, the tenants, the evil tenants. Uh, this wasn't a plan. Okay. And so there are two things we're going to look at today. First of all, there's a very serious warning to us. But again, this is good news. It's gospel. Something even more, there's a greater reason for hope. So we're going to look at the warning. The warning is very serious, but look at the reason for hope. Let's first of all start out by looking in more detail at the story, okay? First of all, they have not been put upon or abused. The owner has done everything with this vineyard. He's the one who planted it. He's the one who put the fence around it. He dug the wine press. He, built, he did everything. All they did was show up. Okay. Now, all he uh, wants is a share of its fruits for getting to use all of this. And notice thing, what's shocking now in the story is they're not arguing about how much. They don't want to share anything. They want to keep it all. So what they do is there's a, set, a series of messengers coming to get the owner's share, the rent, basically. They abuse them. It gets worse as it goes along. And finally, the owner says, well, maybe they will listen to my son and realize this is serious. And what do they actually do when the son comes is they kill him. Now, here's what I want you to listen up to. What's the plan here? They say, he's the son and the heir. If we kill him, we get to keep the vineyard. <sighs> this is not a plan. <laughs> okay, now we might think because it's the ancient world, let's make a modern example and go back to the ancient world. Okay, a modern example. Somebody uh, rents a condo, a vacation condo in Florida on the coast. Okay, and they love the place. It's everything they had hoped. But what happens here is, you know, the rent is such a hassle. There's so many better things to do with the money. So they have the idea of staying in the condo, just not paying the rent, which they don't do. And, of course, they get a series of notices. They get the ugly phone calls, the whole thing. It doesn't bother them, a small price to pay. They start sending people out, and at first they just yell at them, then they start sort of shoving them around. They even let the dogs out once. 
So finally what happens is they send the sheriff and they take a pot shot at the sheriff. And, okay, so what's the plan here? The plan is, well, now that they know we're not going to pay the rent, they'll leave us alone and just keep the condo and live here. This is not a plan. You try a stunt like this, you're going to have a SWAT team in 15 minutes. Okay, so the ancient world wasn't any different. Look at what Jesus says to the people he's talking to. He says, okay, he says, when therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? Jesus is saying, is this a plan? And what they say is they say, well, he'll put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give them the fruits in their seasons. So that's our moral, is that this was not a plan. Now there's an immediate application in a historical context. And that, that has to do with the chief priests and the Pharisees. How do we know this? Because the scriptures actually tell us. Later in the same chapter, it says, the chief priests and the Pharisees, when they heard his parables, they perceived he was talking about them, as indeed he was. So what's the specific situation we have here? Remember, God enters human in a very special way in human history with our father Abraham, the father of all believers, is God makes an incredible promise. He says, first of all, a promise to Israel the people he's chosen, a promise to Abraham's descendants. But more than that, he said, not only to you, you will be a blessing to all the nations, a blessing for Israel, for all of Israel, and a blessing for the whole world. This is the promise. And guess what the job of the chief priests and the Pharisee was? They were supposed to be the trustees of this promise. They were the ones to actual, like a trustee with a trust. Their job was to make this happen, to take care of the beneficiaries, all of Abraham's descendants, and the other nations. Well, actually, what they had done is they thought it would be a terrific idea to just keep it for themselves. So they actually sort of defined themselves in a small circle of people that were worthy of the blessing. They created all sorts of special rules that excluded most of Abraham's descendants as rabble and sinners. This was most regular folks, the non-professionally religious, people who worked in what we'd say kingdom work. You know, they were... I love this in John's Gospel once, referring to their flocks, the people they supposedly served, they said, but this crowd that doesn't know the law is accursed. This is their, their congregations. Okay, uh, so much for that sense of service. And how did they feel about people outside of Israel? Well, uh, Peter had to explain, remember with Cornelius in Acts of the Apostles, he says, you yourselves know it's unlawful for Jews to associate or even visit anyone of another nation. By the way, where does it say that in the Bible? That's not from the Scriptures. That was something that sort of came up. The, uh, the chief Pharisee sort of came up with this. Okay. So what happens? It's not a surprise. He sends the Son, right? The Son is Jesus. He sends the Son, and the Son clearly is not going to be popular. He's the exact opposite. For, for that, that promise to Abraham, the blessing to all of Israel, a blessing to the whole world. So, obviously, he's not going to be popular. The first thing is, where they saw rabble, Jesus kept seeing descendants of Abraham. I love there's one story that had a poor woman who had been, been bent over with, you know, a spinal condition. She was bent over hunchback for 18 years. Imagine that, in pain, can't look up. On a Sabbath day, what did Jesus do? He healed her. Instead of rejoicing, you know what the comment was? This is too good to be true. I can't make it up. The, in the synagogue, the leader said, you know, look, folks, there are other days of the week to take care of that. You can wait another day. 
Jesus didn't see things that way. He thought one more hour was too much. That's how, and look at the explanation he gives. He says, ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan is bound for 18 years, be loosed from the bond on the Sabbath day? They saw just another person out there. He saw a daughter of Abraham, an heir of the promise. Or what about Zacchaeus? Zacchaeus was a tax collector. Besides his obvious virtue, the fact he was short. Okay, besides his obvious virtues and things. Uh, as, as a tax collector, clearly he was outside the realms, right? He was a public sinner. When Jesus invites him, he says, Today salvation has come to this house. Do you remember what the last part of the verse is? Since he also is a son of Abraham. Jesus never lost his ability to see all of Abraham's children. Not just the inner circle, the people just like us. He saw the whole group. And what about foreigners? for whom the Pharisees had absolutely no use. Well, first of all, remember the Roman centurion, part of an occupying army? He's the one that we choose for that wonderful miracle with the sign. What about, or the, the, what about the uh, Samaritan, who's actually, the Samaritans were despised. He's actually the hero of one of the parables. And what about, the, uh, there's a Canaanite woman. The Canaanites are the people driven from the land. She's the one who Jesus says, woman, how great is your faith. So Jesus clearly didn't get the memo about, you know, how we were supposed to deal with the blessing to Israel and the nations. So they have an incredible plan. The plan is get rid of him and everything will be fine. Things can go back to normal. Well, if we read on to, this is chapter 21 in Matthew, chapter 24 of Matthew, we realize this was not a plan. What actually happens, the plan, it all goes up in flames. That's what Jesus tells them today. It's all, this, this is not workable. This is crazy. Now, it's easy to look back on this and say, you know, oh, gee, if we had been there, it would have been different. But the reason we read this in, in church is you do understand for all of us, this is also our story. So the first thing, the word of warning, this is our story in three ways. The first way is this is the story here of all of us who live in North America, Europe, of the post-Christian West. This is our story. You see, the West, the beautiful things that have happened, its advances come from our, our roots in the Jewish and the Christian faith. The gospel is what brought this. For example, human dignity, the dignity of the individual human being. There's a reason it's you, in a special form in the West that's never been found anywhere else the same way. And that's that we believe that every single individual person is created in the image of God. Every last one. And not only that, that every person is capable of personal salvation, being with God for eternity, basically decisions, every one of us, decisions that can affect eternity. That's dignity. You know what dignity means? It's a Latin word, dignus. It means worthy. It means like it has a price on it. It's worth paying for. It's worth something. Saying every person has inherent worth inherent value. Another thing is human rights. Is people in traditional societies outside, they talk about granting privileges, like in the Roman Empire, the emperor would give you special, he would grant you things. We talk in our constitution, talking about from our Christian past, that we say people are endowed by their creator with inalienable rights. These aren't a gift from other people. They're rights guaranteed by God himself. So this isn't just a social convention. These are actual rights. They come from God himself. 
Love, a third thing is love and relationship is primary values. In the Roman world, children and, and wives were basically possessions. They, they called patrofamilias, the father of the family, had absolute life and death right over his family. They were sort of part of his stuff. Only in the West do we suddenly, because of the Christian faith, suddenly see relationship. Children, everyone having this profound value, the value of relationships, love and relationship. And finally, a passion for truth. See, there's a lot of skepticism, despite all the philosophy of the ancient world. Remember when Jesus sees Pilate, he mentions the word truth, and what does Pilate say? <laughs> What's truth? <laughs> say, it's a relative thing. See, Pilate was very modern. And the idea was, is the point is what John's Gospel tells us, the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. What we're saying is because of Jesus Christ, the actual Word of God, we can actually know objective truth because God has revealed Himself. We don't just have to speculate and guess, we can know. So we in the West have a passion from Christ the nations of Christendom, had a passion for knowledge. That's why the university is a unique creation of the Western world, this passion for knowledge, because knowledge was possible. Truth was possible because of revelation. So what happened in the mid-20th century, and from now on we're big into it, in a post-Christian age? People decided, you know, we love the human dignity thing and human rights, that's great, and relationships is a primary value. Wow, and, and knowledge? This is fantastic. Why don't we keep all that good stuff, the Christianity, but get rid of Jesus, that trouble, he's troublesome, he's divisive, get rid of God. Why don't we keep the good stuff and move on? Does this sound vaguely familiar like today's parable? Why don't we kill the son and just keep the stuff for ourselves? This is the plan. Well, let's, have, let's have a reality check right now. How has that worked out for us in the last half century? Well, let's talk about the dignity of the individual, which we're supposed to prize. It strikes me that the objectification of human beings has reached unbelievable levels. This is the story of human trafficking, trafficking, the whole pornography industry. Talk about profound disrespect for individual dignity. It's hard to imagine more than human trafficking and things. And this is just an accepted fact of life in the modern West. And stunning cruelty that would have embarrassed the Romans. I mean, they had the Colosseum and things. Is there a week that goes by that we don't decide we're going to destroy some human being on a Twitter mob? Somebody says something stupid, like we all haven't said stupid things sometime, and the answer has to be complete, utter destruction. This feeling of self, like a Roman mob in the Colosseum with thumbs down. He's got to go, you know, wipe him out, fire him. You know, people say stupid things, but that's not good enough. There's, there's, we forget their people, they become symbols. Instead of real-life human beings, they become symbols. We can do anything to a symbol. Okay, what about human rights? Well, human rights are great unless you're vulnerable and inconvenient. That's pretty much what has happened. In 50 years, we now have the fact that people champion the fact that a child minutes from being born can still be eliminated and the body parts sold at the whim of the mother. No reason at all. No claim, no health reason, whatever. Simply at whim, they're inconvenient. The disabled, we had a horrifying announcement a few weeks ago in Iceland that was actually celebrated. The problem of Down syndrome has been eliminated in Iceland. Well, frankly, how did they do this? Was it some medical advance? No. It's the same way the problem, the Jewish question, was resolved in 1930s and 40s Europe. Yes, they systematically have eliminated all Down syndrome children. 
we celebrate this. This is actually celebrated. And euthanasia is now a way of life in Western Europe. So the troublesome elderly, uh, uh, we, uh, they won't be troublesome long. Okay, so much for the human rights thing. How about love and relationship as primary values? We're all the way back to polygamy. Remember polygamy? You say, what, what are you talking about? Oh, we have serial polygamy. So instead of one man, one woman, one lifetime, we talk about a series of spouses. We take as pretty, pretty ordinary. We just do them in a row. And talk about disposable children, disposable spouses. We, we move on with our lives, and people are just going to have to do the best they can. Disposable. And what about the passion for truth? Wow. Uh, we've replaced objective truth, which is sort of silly. It's all relative. By the notions of narratives now, we create truth. We, 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 we construct truths, narratives. Instead of research and persuasion, we talk about propaganda and aggression. So, so much for our plan. This was not a plan. That's one area. But what another thing we have, what about the church? Being old, I've lived through the glory years of the church. You know, after the Second World War, there was the glory years and things. Here's what has happened, folks, is we were entrusted by Jesus, just like the Pharisees were and the, the chief priests, with God's message of love and his passion for the world. Remember, Jesus said on the very night of his resurrection, he says, as the Father sent me, I'm sending you. You know, we're the, the agency of blessing to the world, to bring that message out to the world. He says his last, you know, his commission, his last commission to us is go make disciples of all nations. So the whole reason, you know, Christ has chosen his church is to be an extension of his mission, to be his mission. Instead, I've lived through a lot of things, frankly, of the comfortable church. The church turned into a spiritual club. You know, we might do some things on the side, but there's no passion for those far from the Lord. It was a, it was a, a thing we did. If some people got converted, that, that's okay. <laughs> uh, there was, that, that was lost. This was not a plan. Look what has happened to the church in 50 years. We have arrived for the first time in American history, a significant portion of the population is describing themselves having no religious affiliation, the famous nuns, a category, nuns, no religious affiliation. In mainline churches now, I like to joke with my wife that uh, mainline churches, the average age of people who attend is getting to be, uh, frankly, um, uh, it's, it's like, like the average age of a cemetery. <laughs> it's just a bunch of old people. It's really dying off. The mainline churches are simply dying out. And an increasingly hostile society around us. Okay, so we have the Western society. We have the, the comfortable church. Those days are gone. But even sometimes in our personal lives, haven't we been complicit? And here's how. Remember, we said we're made in the image of God. Well, think about it. What's most God-like? Well, think about it. In the world, God is the only, is the, all that there is that has always existed, right? Everything else comes from God. God is the source of all things. So why is there anything else? God doesn't need anything. Why did he make the world? Because love is all about giving. God can't help himself. God is love, and love is all about giving. So to be made in the image of God is to be made a giver. We have a beautiful example of this Paul in the letter to the Ephesians. In the letter to the Ephesians, he's talking about people who have been thieves. And he says, stop stealing. Now, why did he tell them that? We might think, well, gee, obviously, duh. If you stop stealing, if you, he said, work, get a job. He said, yeah, if you, if you work, you won't have to steal, right? You, you'll have what you need. You know, that's not the reason Paul gives. What does Paul actually say when he tells thieves why they shouldn't steal? 
he says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him do labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Because it's the most human thing, we, the most humanizing thing a person does is being a giver. We give of ourselves, that's other stuff. That's, that's most in the image of God. This is who we were created to be, to be givers. So what do we do? Instead, we become takers. We have a society of consumption, of consumption that celebrates consuming and taking. What's in it for me? Many lives are taken up with meeting needs that we didn't even know before advertising. There's suddenly crucial needs in our lives that we weren't even aware of. <laughs> Generations have lived without them, but not us. Do I have to tell you that this is not a plan? This has not worked out very well? Uh, we've tried to buy a life for ourselves, and what a lot of people we have all around us, how many people do we know who are lonely, all alone in the world, surrounded by mountains of stuff? <laughs> they create, or they're, you know, actually their stuff has just cut them off. So in short, the story of the chief, we, we can't go look and, and, and tut-tut at them. This is our story, whether it be society, our Western society, whether it be sometimes the church, the comfortable church, and sometimes even ourselves as modern consumers. Okay, that's the warning. But I said the gospel is always about good news. I mean, really good news, so much bigger than the warning. So what's the good news here? Well, the tenants are crazy. This is not a plan. This can't work. There's somebody crazier in the parable. Somebody crazier. Who? The owner. We've already had, if you count carefully, at least seven messengers have been sent with terrible things happening. Now, if you love your son, this is way most of us would say, well, oh, I'll send someone I love so he can get hurt too. This would not be the normal reaction. And actually, we have two reasons. The scriptures say, well, maybe they'll respect my son, but there's got to be another reason. Okay, and there is a reason. You know what it is? Is the deeper reason is simply this. Think of it. God is love, and frankly, love does crazy things. I mean that seriously. That's the essence of love. Love does crazy things. You know, the, the philosopher Pascal uh, famously uh, put it, he says, the heart has its own reasons which reason cannot explain. It sounds better in French. Okay, but okay, but the heart has its own reasons, which reason cannot explain. Now, let me persuade you, because this is something we all know from experience and from history. Everyone here knows this. There can't be anyone here who doesn't know somebody who's walked away from everything for love. They've had a great job or something right there. They're a family, and they find someone, they fall in love, and they go off to another part of the country. Because love, they leave everything behind. We know, and you say, well, why would you do that? What is she thinking? And you say, love does crazy things. That's what love does. We think of people, adult children, sometimes devote the best years of their life to taking care of elderly parents. Sometimes parents who can't even understand, uh, you know, in Alzheimer's and things, don't even recognize them. Why would you do that? Love does crazy things. Think of history. I think most of us probably know if you ever had, you know, Levi's jeans, Levi Strauss, the Strauss of Levi Strauss, is that Isidore Strauss? He's on the Titanic, along with his wife, Ida, of 47 years. And when the Titanic was going down, Ida, uh, as a woman, had a place in a lifeboat. She was ready to go, and she refused. She got out of the boat. She said, I'm not going to leave my husband alone. Not after 47 years, I'm not. 
And they said, this doesn't make any sense. He's going to die anyway. Say goodbye here. No. She got off and stayed with She didn't have any children to take care of. She got off and stayed. It doesn't make any sense, but love does crazy things. Finally, one I love is Janusz Korczak. probably means nothing to you, but in Europe, he was a very well-known children's author of the 1930s and uh, translated all the major European languages. And he wrote wonderful children, but he's also the head of an orphanage. Well, during the, uh, during the Nazi era, during the war, they decided his orphans, about 200 orphans, and his orphanages didn't really have a place in the New World Order. So they had to go. Of course, no one was talking about him going. I mean, he's everyone who he was and things. No, no, no. Just them. You understand. Decisions have, have been made. This has to happen. Again and again, he refused safety. Refused safety again because he wouldn't let them go alone. He went to the Treblinka death camp where people were always killed the same day. They didn't even go through the motions of work. It was a death camp. He went with them because he didn't want them to go alone and be scared. Why would you do that? They're going to die anyway, but love does crazy things. So the really good news is truth is stranger than fiction. The real son in this parable is Jesus. And this is John, the famous John 3.16. God so loved the world, he sent his only son. This is the truth. This is stranger than fiction. And the good news is it's not too late. We can still heed his call. He's alive and well. It's the resurrected Jesus. It's not over and done. We can still heed that call. So in conclusion, we might be tempted when we look at our situation of our society, or sometimes the church as it becomes narrower and narrower, or even our own lives. We'd say, gee, we might be overcome by cynicism. It's too late. What we can do? Despair. Well, I think there's another passage in the Bible that is like an amazing cause for hope. It's in the Hebrew Bible. You might not realize this. The, the Hebrew Bible, our Old Testament, is arranged differently than we have it now. We sort of rearranged it to make it sort of chronological. In some ways, we end with the book of Malachi. But actually, what happens in the, in the actual Hebrew Scriptures, remember they talk in the New Testament about there's the law and the prophets and the writings. And the very last book of the Hebrew Bible is it's a single book. It's, instead of First and Second Chronicles, they have a single book called, you know, the, the Chronicles. So the very last book in the Hebrew Bible is the book of Chronicles. So what happens in the very last chapter of the very last book of the Hebrew Bible? Well, they have a situation that's identical virtually to what we have today in the parable. Here's how it's described in 2 Chronicles 36, 15 through 16, these two verses. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words, scoffing at his prophets, until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people. Listen to this verse. Until there was no remedy. Talk about awesome words. Until there was no remedy. So the consequences, the next three verses, are pretty dire. So what happens? Therefore he brought against them the king of the Chaldeans, who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or aged. He gave them all into his hand, and all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and his princes, all those he brought to Babylon. And they burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem 
and they burned all of its palaces with fire and destroyed all its precious vessels, and he took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword. It looks like the end of the story, the end of the Jewish story. The temple is gone, Jerusalem is gone, the Jews are gone. But to know the God of Israel is to realize this can't be the end of the story. Not the God of Israel. So, what are the last two verses of the Hebrew Bible? Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, the king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. The very last words of the Hebrew Bible. Jerusalem, the temple, will be restored. God's people will be restored to their land. The very last words. So too for us, again, it's hardly too late. We have, like when, when Pastor Wright was with us last week, we're talking about revival, but the fact it's always never too late for God. Remember a few weeks ago we read the story in Jonah? Uh, and Jonah was very upset because when Nineveh repented. But we sometimes misunderstand the story because people tell it's true that the Jews had no use for the Assyrians for obvious reasons. The Assyrians were cruel, you know, destroyed the northern kingdom. That's understandable. So Jonah wasn't thrilled, but that wasn't his complaint to God. What was his complaint? I love this. This is a real article of faith. Think about this. He said, I knew you would do this. You see, God sent a message saying, I'm going to destroy Nineveh. But when people heeded the message, what happens? God changes the plan. So Jonah basically complains, I knew you would do this. I'd make a fool out of myself. I'm going to say you destroy everything, and here I'm going to look, I'm going to be holding the bag. He said, I knew you're like this. That's his question with God. Well, we should know. That's a breathing article. Think of that. God's always like that. In, in Ezekiel 18, I love the lines where he says, I don't desire the death of anyone. I desire that the sinner turn from his way and live. This is our God. So how do we deal when we look at when we're tempted to despair? Is look at the verses we have printed on your sermon page in the bulletin. This is the promise to Isaiah. It's, it's open to us as well. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they'll become like wool. If you're willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. You know, one beautiful reminder the church has given us historically, the church always said morning prayer goes back for, over, for two millennia, morning prayer. But for over a thousand years, specifically in the Western church, we've always begun morning prayer with Psalm 95. It's called the Invitatory Psalm. And what are the last words that we read every day to start the morning prayer? It says, Oh, that today you would hearken to his voice. Every day we're asking, you know, it's not too late. Oh, that today would be the day that we'd hearken to his voice. So let that be our prayer now as we look at it, if ever we're tempted to realize that God's, God's craziness and sense of his love, his incredible love that we see in, in Jesus Christ, what he's done, is fathomless. It's inexhaustible. It's not to be mocked. There are consequences. But the point is it's never too late to turn. And so let us, you know, make our prayer today, oh, that today 
Lord, oh, that today we would hearken to your voice. Amen. Thanks for listening. Our vision at Church of the Resurrection is to equip everyone for transformation. As part of that vision, we love to share dynamic teaching, original music, and stories of transformation. For more of what you heard today, check out the rest of our podcast. To learn more about our ministry, visit churchres.org.